Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz vocalist Michelle Coltrane. She just released her second CD, 2017's Awakening. She was born in Paris, France, and is the only daughter of Alice and John Coltrane. As that backdrop to her life, she was always surrounded by music and encouraged to get involved. She would go on to live in Japan and work as a DJ and performing background vocals for prominent artists. Over time, she has toured the U.S. and France as a soloist and performed with so many cats like Billy Childs and Jack DeJohnette. Even with that Coltrane name, she has established her own jazz lore and has many stories to impart. So please get to know her and dig this interview, my friends. So now that it's out and it's getting good reviews, how do you feel about it? I wanted to, in some way, kind of pay homage to the family, include Alice. I, uh, I included something about my son. You know, I did a, a classic John Coltrane song that I wrote lyrics to and scattered uh, the original horn solo. Uh, those were some things that I, I wanted to do. I, I, I wasn't going to do a covers of Alice and John Coltrane song, but I did want to make it personal in that way that I did uh, find a couple of pieces that I thought were appropriate for me. It makes me feel great. It makes me feel good. It was a lot of hard work and... Uh, you know, I just look at all the, the veterans of the industry and how they talk about recordings and how nobody knows what it, you know, you just do the work and then you, you hope that the public is receptive to it. So the one thing I did want to bring up to you now, and, it, and it's timely because it's on the eve of Valentine's Day. Um, oh. I interviewed Terry Gibbs about two and a half years ago. And oh. he, he comes from the old school. And when you request interviews, they call back from a landline and say, look, you need to read my book before we go on. <laughs> so <laughs> I read his book, got back with him. And in that interview with him, because he's in his late 90s, he's been around so much, he's seen such a large swath of jazz. He told me probably one of the best love stories. I, to this day, re recount this story. He explained how your mother would be in a phone booth when your father would play, and he saw her fall in love with him. And it was probably one of the best stories I've ever heard. And it could have been anybody, but it happened to be your parents. And I, to this day, it shattered any notion I had of Hollywood films about love. It was the realest thing that I've heard about two people that fiercely fell in love with each other. So I just wanted you to know, and, and I, yesterday I posted my 500th interview with the great Pat Martino, and in all of the years, the six years I've interviewed, that was one of the more vivid stories, and I just wanted wow. you to know that. So, oh, um, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it was. Yeah, but those two were, were definitely, um, as I said before, perfectly paired for the universe. Absolutely. With that in mind, kind of playing off of that, I want to get to the beginnings of your life, your birth in Paris, and ask you, was music written in your star map, or was it something that kind of evolved for you to get into? Well, when you grow up in a home with professional musicians, which is the case for me and my brothers, there, there's a lot of instruments in the, you know, um, we, you know, we were allowed to touch them too. You know, my mother was, you know, my, my parents were very gentle people, and I never remember getting reprimanded for touching the piano or the 
organ or the harp or the Indian instruments that were in the living room, you know, stepping on saxophone cases. So having those so close felt very natural. Uh, I think uh, looking back that I um, probably thought I could play the piano and uh, even though I did, I studied violin when I was younger, but I think it's in your heart and in your spirit. A love for music, uh, the love for diversity in music came very young to all of the brothers, all of the children were, we were lucky to play different instruments growing up in school. I think that's natural on any normal kind of household, non-professional musicians, I'm sure would have kids that play instruments, but um, after you kind of stand on the sidelines and you see your parents walk out on the stage, when I would see my mother sit down at the piano, you know, of course I I wanted to imagine myself in that place. I just didn't know how I was going to get there, you know, and, and that I wasn't her. And what choice would I make? You know, what would be my direction in music? Because she had definitely gone through different phases. Uh, in her music, and when she was young, I didn't really get to see her play bebop, which she's a very, very talented uh, bebop player. Uh, it was in the later years uh, that I was on uh, recording sessions with her. So let me ask you this about your kind of geographical music timeline here. After Paris, where did you move on to, and kind of how did that, how did the your music education, whether it was formal or in the real world, how did that kind of start expanding for you from childhood? Well, I started, uh, well, we moved to uh, Long Island. Fortunately, those schools at that time, you, I had played clarinet in like third grade. So I learned how to read music very young. And uh, then I switched to violin. My mother said that my, my fingers were, were just shaped in the right way. They look like violinist fingers. So I got went to Sam Ash, got a violin, I played some viola, just kept trying different instruments along the way, guitar, some flute, some piano. Then I realized that I liked vocals because I just find the voice to be very intimate. Um, you know, all of the all our DNA like we were given a voice. You don't have to buy a voice. It's, it's so it's kind of everybody has one. Whether they use it for singing or not, all the voices are distinct. And um, I think that's what attracts me to um, vocal singing. You know, we had some time as a family, we would actually have um, family night and we would play whatever instruments we would play. My mother would play with us and we'd, we'd do our little shows and stuff. And that was in Long Island. And then at, in 70. Two, we moved to uh, California. My mother uh, was still playing with the... She, she had a, a record contract. Uh, I, it's hard to say that word now. People don't say that very much. But <laughs> she was, she was uh, with the label, and we moved to California, and uh, she continued to record there. So um, I got to play strings on a few of her uh, sessions. But I still kind of kept the... Uh, like the the vocal thing. I just needed to learn. I needed to find a place that I thought my voice would fit. And as much as I loved commercial music or like what my friends were listening to, I really loved jazz. I I like the stories. It's just something I I had aspired to during that that time in, in California. So those songs, you have to 
do the work. There's a lot of work there and a lot to listen to. When you were a child, what record, what albums, LPs did you listen to that made a real profound impact on you? Oh, wow. You know, I listened to Joni Mitchell, <laughs> to say. Mm-hmm. I listened to Stanley Clark. Uh, I listened to um, Shaka Khan, some of the older, older ones. I can't think of the name. But it was when she was with that the band Rufus. And uh, I listened to a lot of Natalie Cole. Of course, we listened to our, our parents' music. Uh, I loved uh, Greensleeves. Uh, I thought that... Um, that my dad wrote green sleeves, but now you know it was a, a you know folk song. We loved uh, Stravinsky. Our mother played a lot of classical music for us in the house, and uh, we used to jump and dance around the couch, you know, uh, listening to the Firebird Suite. So, like I said, there was a lot of diversity there uh, with music. Uh, listening to Ella Fitzgerald and. Sarah Vaughn, and then when we moved to California, Sarah Vaughn lived in the next neighborhood, and she rode by on a bicycle. It was was just surreal, like unbelievable, you know, and uh, I know how people felt, you know, probably about Alice, too, but yeah, what a a wonderful day. Well, speaking of surreal, you know, the thing about growing older on this planet is that you just don't realize some things when you're young. Youth has a way of kind of putting a shield over you. When you were growing up, did you have any idea how magnanimous the the musical traditions that your parents were laying down into the world that transcended all kinds of different genres? Did you have any idea or did that kind of become more of a bigger thing as you got older in life and started getting into your career? Yes, totally later in life because uh, we still had family activities, you know, my brothers played football, I was on a gymnastics team, I rode horses, you know, we had pets and, you know, our mother had to to reprimand us, you know, Uh, we knew that she was a musician, but it was almost at that point, she didn't work as much, so I thought, oh, you know, well, she's retired, we used to ask her, well, why don't, you know, how come you don't want to play music anymore, and that's when she was, you know, made her choice to play devotional music and go in the direction of God, and that is the part that I saw grow. The history and the legacy of the parents, that absolutely was later. I I mean, people would come up to me and grab me and say, I love this song, or this meant so much to me. I I stopped doing this, this, broke this habit because I listened to A Love Supreme every day, and I would kind of just, you know, would take me off guard for a second, but as that started to, when I, you know, became older, I just realized, and falling in love with my own, you know, outside of my family, falling in love with other artists, how special that would mean to someone, uh, for someone to stop and say something like that and and come to tears to talk about a piece of music that they heard. It definitely was a a thing that blossomed and came to view to realize that uh, we just came from, you know, we had a, two parents that were just, were uh, iconic, you know. They were re- revered in their life, you know, just like uh, John was revered in his life, but then his afterlife was incredible. And now that Alice has passed 11 years ago, now she's kind of 
taking the same trajectory where, you know, she's kind of becoming big as the sky with uh, the release of uh, some music that uh, she recorded in the 90s that was just released by Luaka Pop Records, uh, David Burns from the Talking Heads label. And this this music was released last March, and the, the record went to number one in world music and new age I, I see a pattern here. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Without a doubt. Well, I want to talk to you about living in Japan. And you worked as a DJ. You did background did. vocals. You had a couple of – there's there a lot of things that happened when you were there. Talk to me about that time in your life. Okay. Well, uh, Alice and uh, Ravi and Oran, it was, uh, there was a – they did a jazz concert there. I, I can't – remember the name. I went along and uh, doing my managerial duties and uh, I met these girls and they said we, we dance in a dance troupe. Why don't you stay? You can stay if you want to. We have a place and you could manage our group. I, my mother thought it was okay. I went back to LA, grabbed some stuff and I stayed uh, there and that was during the boom of Japan uh, you know with um Everybody was making money in Japan. I stayed and uh, I got involved with these girls, uh, ended up singing background. Um, you know, we were kind of like the uh, the soul sisters behind some of the Japanese artists, you know, some girls with the fro and the boots and the, the look. And, and sometimes they wanted the English, the, the words in English or some of the chorus and we would kind of coach them. And that was a lot of fun, and they paid very well. Very nice to learn about their culture. And, you know, you get paid before you, when you get there, your check is ready and your lunch, you know, just the, like I said, a, a different culture and uh, very respectful. Uh, and then I got a job DJing. Uh, I worked at a place, uh, this is DJ when I, you know, when he, not before the scratching, I guess. I played a lot of, it was a, called Eddie's R&B Joint. So I got to sit there and read all the album liner notes for, for all of these, uh, you know, records that I actually grown up with. And that was really nice. And uh, then I got a job uh, doing a Chevrolet commercial. And uh, then I wrote a song for a theme park called Space World, which I don't think it exists anymore. So um, a lot of fun. And we got to every artist that came to Japan, we got to hang out with everybody. Stevie Wonder came. We could just walk in because they thought we were, you know, you know, Japanese are so polite, you know. So, you know, we're like, yeah, we're we're with them, and we'd walk into the to the to concert hall, and no one would stop us. We had no passes or anything. So I had a lot of fun over there in Japan. You know, the interesting thing about Japan, and hopefully I can witness this someday, is that I always hear that when jazz musicians play. They're treated like the Beatles, and whenever they play, there's a hush in the crowd. And is, is that just beautiful to witness, how they worship and love jazz so much over there? Yes. Very, they're very appreciative of art and very respectful. And uh, when I would, you know, you could go, you know, go sit in at the jazz club. Yeah, I had a little band that I worked at the Officers Club with as well. And um, yeah, they would sometimes woot and cheer, and it's like, who are we, you know? My mom told me that when um, the last album that uh, her and John went to, uh, when they arrived in Japan, this is uh, probably six, seven, eight months before he passed, 
that uh, the, when the plane landed, she said they rolled out a real red carpet. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> the is here. Yeah. Really? You know, the one thing about your life, too, is you've been fortunate to have traveled, you know, in Europe and the United States and all over the place, and you played with a lot of people. You've had a long lineage of jazz education by being around other musicians and being around the world. What is it like, I guess it's a twofold question, to, to present your music to people around the world in different cultures? And what do you learn from these veteran musicians that you get the chance to be around, like, say, a Jack Dijonette? I, I always learn something, sometimes so very basic, like uh, I wanted to sing Lush Life uh, one time. with uh, I sat in with Mom and Jack, and uh, maybe Reggie was on it, and they said, oh, there's that line. You need to go check that line, uh, you know, and, and but Jack's very positive, and uh, he, he, he actually liked the first album. He uh, liked the arrangement, and... Uh, you know, they're kind of like from another era, you know, uh, and, and like fatherly. So, you know, sadly, a lot of those people are leaving us, you know. I would hope that, that people, you know, embrace some of the younger artists, you know. And give them encouragement, you know, to, to keep on going in direction. So I guess that's the other part of this as well. All of that experience that you've gotten from a very early age and from all the musicians you've been around, what do you teach younger musicians? What do you want to give to them that's encouraging, not only about being a musician, but about being a, you know, an artistic individual on this planet? I want to give a, I guess, partly a, a dialogue, almost a, a diary of, my life and experiences uh, that could perhaps influence, inspire someone. Um, I'm sure there's others like me. Certainly there are women that uh, made a choice to raise their children. Uh, you know, I, I jumped into music and then I married a musician and then the focus was on his career. Uh, he was a Cuban musician and uh, I decided to become a, you know, a mother, and my mother said, you need to stay with your kids. Uh, she was able to do music, and we went on the road a lot with my mother. The way my life uh, went is, at my kids, I still had my kids grown up. So what am I going to do for the next 30 years of my life if I'm so lucky enough to be here? And I think that uh, anybody can stay. So I, I took what I had an affinity for, and I picked it up and put it back together and started doing it again. So that's one angle that whatever day you start, whatever day you want to be a runner or, or whatever it is. I knew I met a lady who started jogging when she was 80. That is an encouragement to people, and that I hope that, that there's some beauty. I hope that someone can be touched by uh, um, inspired by some of the music that we're doing. You know, the thing about life is that we're, it, it's a journey. It's not a, it's not a destination, so to speak. And you mentioned seeing your mother at a piano and how would you get to the point where you would be at that point when your first CD came out, I think of you, and you actually saw your first name in, in, in front of that Coltrane name. How did that feel for you? Uh, a little, little scary. 
because the only thing it can, anyone could compare it to were the Coltrane's and the sound. If there's a sound of what a Coltrane sound sounds like, perhaps people would have an expectation of that. And I can say for myself that maybe it's something that I still struggle with about still keeping in the lane of what you do, what my voice sounds like, what my range is, what, and finding my sweet spot. You know what I mean? I, I can, any, you could be encouraged by John Coltrane. You don't have to necessarily play the licks that he played. It, it's nice to learn them. Uh, anybody that we admire as an artist, you definitely have value and meaning to what, who you are. And, and that's okay, and that's fun. And some musicians have, have said, that you, said that to me, too, in an encouraging manner, including Jerry Allen, who we just lost recently. And she was always, uh, a lot, especially people that are attached to education, you know, they, they really get that because it's true. What do you tell a kid that's starting out, well, invent something or, or find, you know, you, could, you don't have to invent yourself. So at least you've got that to start with. And um, I just um, hope that, uh, you know, I mean, it is, I hope that I can continue to do music that people can be inspired by or entertained by. You know, I don't have to, you know, go all, you know, to change your, your life. You know, there's some artists that can do that. I'm very happy being in a position to entertain people in a musical fashion, you know, so uh, there are other, you know, we can name tons and tons of artists that have had the, the way they affect people um, is very powerful, and um, every person is an individual. I'm constantly looking to be inspired by other people, to new people that I have never heard of, so hopefully we can just keep the ball spinning. <laughs> Well, you've been in the position that um, I I do myself here in Kansas City. You were on 90.7 for five years on a show called Straight No Chaser. You interviewed, you know, your mother, Freddie Hubbard, Elvin Jones, and spun the music. How much fun was that for you? Did you like that? I loved it. That was uh, was good for me. It was a part of uh, uh, to be a good learn how to be an interviewer, but learn how to be interviewed because I'm doing a lot of that lately. When, you know, when something precious happens or a very unique moment, like you mentioned earlier about Terry Gibbs, uh, that was, it was was a really great time in my life. Yeah, I loved it. You know, the one other story that I did want to impart on you that has been rather profound in all of the years that I've done interviews, I interviewed Mr. Brian Haas um, from the Jacob Fred Odyssey. He at one point was talking about kind of how he lives his life this day, these days, and he said this, and I always remember this. This is one of the best quotes I ever got. He said, Joe, I don't believe in God. I don't read the Bible every day, but I listen to John Coltrane every day. <laughs> <laughs> and, man, that, that quote just ricocheted. I think the rest of that interview, my brain was just gone. <laughs> How do you top that kind of quote? But it was beautiful. <laughs> you don't, but uh, that's that's just you know his, his his story is one man's story, and we can all be inspired by that in whatever you do. If you're a scientist, or if you you know, if Edward James almost came on and spoke at one of our events, a charity event, 
and he, he kind of went into that. If, if John Coltrane was a doctor, he, that's the kind of doctor he would have been. He would have made that impact. So, you know, we, you know, I could not be left out. We can all aspire to be great in what we do. And uh, that's there's a, just a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of great response from that from people in the audience. And uh, a lot of John Coltrane quotes, as you well know, like Carlos Santana saying, listen to John Coltrane, it'll change your molecular structure. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's very true. So I'm getting the feeling from you that you're satisfied with where you're at as an artist uh, at this point in your life. Is that true to say? Never satisfied. It's just uh, I'm satisfied with I have to be grateful to have gotten this far. I'm grateful that I had a crew of people to work with. I, I didn't get to this on my own. So uh, I have uh, people counting on me now that the investment that they made that I am, you know, I'm going to to help support that and promote it. Hopefully, we can we can do it again, and it will allow me an opportunity to work with pe- other people that I admire. You know, so we have to kind of start somewhere. I feel like I have, you know, when they I just heard on the news they were uh, there were no more. Was it Walmart's not going to have CDs or Target anymore? And it was like, oh no! Wow. Maybe mine is, maybe this one is the last one. And a lot of the cars don't have them and all that. And, you know, we'll, we'll move on to the next uh, format and everything. We will. It's like when newspapers started folding. That was a big shock to me, you know. Um, yeah, I love folding the paper. The whole fun is folding the paper. Man, are you kidding? That's the thing. You know, it's the it's that visceral feeling. It's the yeah. It's it's having something palatable in your hand. My brain is on this. You know, I've, I've just completed my 500th interview, and I think about all of the questions and all of the responses that I've got. And the one question that I always ask, and I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to preface this before I do. I always okay. ask if that jazz DeLorean pulls up in front of your house, and you got the flux capacitor, you can punch into digits, you can go anywhere at any time, and you can see whoever you want in the annals. I ask that question to everybody, and if I took a poll, I would say overwhelmingly the one musician that everybody says is John Coltrane. So I want to ask you, if you could get into that DeLorean and get into that time machine and go back in time, who are you going to see and where are you going to go what year? Now you know I'm going to go back and see John Coltrane too. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I presume that I didn't want to be presumptuous. <laughs> Are you kidding? My goodness. <laughs> That's perfect. So let me ask you this. In a generic sense, for someone that's been so baptized in the jazz arts, who's dedicated your life to this, why do you love jazz? I love jazz because it, uh, it's the freedom. It's the ability to take a song like I Want to Know What Love Is, that was an, an 80s pop ballad, strip it down and still execute the song. You know, it's like the uh, the ability to, uh, as a band, feel hints in a direction and that and everybody follows it. You know, when, when those moments happen, you are elated. You know, they don't always happen. But when they do, you always want to go back for more. So I like I love I love I love the stories. Why I have to I, I love the vocals because 
where the story is told very well, and there's great improvising. Uh, it, it just it doesn't get boring to me. It, it never feels boring. And that's what I like. I like hearing songs in every possible shape and way and form that, that they could come in. So everything's going to come down to this final question that, that yeah. we get hopefully to the essence of who you are. Everyone has a version of you. The world at large, your family, your friends, your fans. But when you wake up and you face the world, who do you think you are? I'm a spark of divinity. I love that. That is the best Twitter-fied short answer I've ever gotten. I love it. Absolutely love it. Michelle, thank you for taking a minute to speak <laughs> to me about your your album Awakening, your life and music, and imparting a little time with me on jazz. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Paris, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Michelle Coltrane for standing out, giving us her music, and all of those stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Angel glow. Neon Jazz.